Hello, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. This is a weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories from around the globe. MLEX is the name of our media organisation. My name is James Paniki. Every week at this time, I have a chat with members of our team to see what's firing up their imaginations. And in just under 10 minutes from now, we'll be taking a look at one of the most significant stories to hit Europe this year, the increase in energy prices. As we'll hear, natural causes are certainly part of the equation, but the European Union, being what it is, means that politics and policy settings are always very close to the surface. Our energy reporter, Julia Bedini, is standing by to walk us through it. First up, though, it's not often that a bank in the UK is found guilty of criminal money laundering charges. In fact, it has never happened before, which is why the recent conviction of NatWest, a retail and commercial bank in the UK, is such big news. It's an extraordinary tale that is likely to culminate in a massive fine. Martin Coyle is a senior MLEX correspondent based in London. He covers anti-bribery and corruption along with money laundering and other financial crime. And he has followed developments with NatWest with great attention. Uh, Martin, uh, perhaps let's start with an overview of what has happened with NatWest. Hi, James. Yes, so uh, NatWest uh, pleaded guilty on the... Uh, 7th of October at uh, Westminster Magistrates Court in London um, to money laundering charges brought by the UK's financial regulator, which is the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, And at that hearing, um, it admitted three charges of failing to properly conduct ongoing monitoring of a customer account between November 2012 and June uh, 2016. Uh, And this follows charges that were laid against the bank uh, way back in March uh, there have been four, uh, as far as I know, four cancelled hearings, but eventually uh, they sorted out the issues and the, the bank turned up, um, or lawyers for the bank turned up, and it pleaded guilty to those charges. And, I mean, a fine levelled at a bank, I mean, is this a big deal? Is this anything out of the ordinary? Well, it, it, it certainly is a big deal. Um, it's uh, NatWest now has the distinction of being the first uh, UK bank to be prosecuted by the Financial Conduct Authority uh, under the country's uh, money laundering regulations uh, 2007. Typically, the FCA has dealt with these uh, money laundering transgressions or failure to prevent money laundering um, with civil fines. And it it seems in this case it deemed the bank's conduct so serious it it took it to court. So it's, uh, it's now got that dubious distinction of being the first uh, lender to be prosecuted in the country. Although no individuals were prosecuted, right? It was just the bank. That's right. Uh, the, the FCA said that it is just taking action against the bank uh, in this instance. OK, so what did the bank do, or rather, what did it fail to do? Well, at that hearing, we got a bit, little bit more detail of, of, of what had happened or what's what's been going on. Uh, and basically, the, the FCA, or a lawyer for the FCA, said that... Uh, Hundreds of millions of pounds was was laundered uh, through NetWest accounts during that period. I mean, it's incredible, really. At one point, uh, 1.8 million pounds in cash was being deposited a day uh, in these NetWest accounts. Um, so, 1.8 million pounds every day. Every day, at, at, at the height of the the conduct, that's, that's an incredible amount of cash, uh, and this was um, uh, via an account. 
uh, held by a gold dealer in, in the north of England. Uh, now, the prosecutor said in total £364 million went through that uh, account. Uh, the, the majority of, of that was in, was in cash. So, you know, there's some very, very serious red flags there that, that weren't picked up by the bank. Um, now, West Yorkshire Police initially investigated the case and they uh, suspected, uh, probably quite rightly, that the, the, um, the money was linked to large-scale money laundering. Um, uh, for, for its part, the bank said it deeply regretted it, uh, the, the failings and its, um, uh, it didn't adequately monitor and uh, prevent money laundering between, that, between 2012 and two, uh, 2016. And it said it's put in a lot of changes to, um, to, 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 to ensure this doesn't happen again. Mm. And so what happens next? Where do we go from here? Right. So um, the bank will be sentenced in December in a higher court at Southern, Southwark Crown Court, which is where all the um, sort of serious financial crime cases go. Um, now, um, pr- the prosecutor, Claire Montgomery, uh, said the FCA would seek a fine of up to £340 million. Um, she said it's likely to be a very large fine. Um, now... That fine or that penalty, if 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 imposed, would would far exceed the regulator's uh, you know previous largest um, sanction for money laundering failures, in it, which was obviously a, a civil uh, fine, which was 163 million pounds uh, imposed on Deutsche Bank in 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 January 2017 for for money laundering failures. But crucially for the bank, the FCA has uh, previously indicated that it won't take away uh, NatWest's um, banking licence. And uh, as, you've, as you've said, or as we've said, uh, it won't go after any, um, any individuals. But, you, you know, this is all about reputation and this is a huge black mark against NatWest's na- uh, name, even though that, that, that penalty the FCA is, like, is seeking will likely be argued down. I mean, the, the judge will probably take account of the, um, the guilty plea um, and any sort of redemption or, or, or you know, um, steps the bankers take to, to clear up its controls. Okay, so other banks would be watching all of this with great interest. What would it mean for other lenders and what would it mean for future cases brought by the FCA? Uh, yeah, they certainly will be looking at this um, with a bit of trepidation, I would have thought. Um, and I think we can just... Uh, trace it back to uh, 2019 uh, when the FCA indicated uh, it would be looking to use its uh, criminal powers um, to to hit firms that kind of mess up with their anti-money laundering or financial crime control. So it's finally come come through with this, and I think uh, other other lenders will, will will be looking to ensure they have their houses in order. Um, you know, to make sure that they don't get dragged through the courts. Uh, and it's, you know, it's certainly not a, a good look for a bank to be up in front of a judge. Martin, thank you so much for following this story for MLEX. Let's catch up again very soon. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle is a senior MLEX correspondent and he was speaking to us from London. And Martin's fine analysis of the NatWest criminal cartel prosecution and what it means more broadly for the financial services industry is ready for you to read. Just go to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. 
and click on the appropriately named News Hub tab for a selection of the best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. Subscribers, of course, will have access to the full portfolio of NatWest coverage, so plenty of weekend reading for you there. I'm James Paniki, and you're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. Thank you for making it this far. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And we would love it if you were to leave a review and help us spread the word. Well, the European Union is facing a bleak winter indeed, with soaring energy prices unlikely to come down anytime soon. And national governments are turning to Brussels for guidance as they intervene in their energy markets to try to offer both the public and local businesses some relief. Julia Bedini is a Brussels-based energy reporter with MLEX and she joins us right now. Uh, Julia, firstly, what are the main causes of this spike in energy prices? Uh, Well, James, the reasons behind this price surge are several. Uh, First of all, global demand for energy and in particular gas is steeply increasing due to the post-pandemic economic recovery. And at the same time, rising demand hasn't really been matched by increasing supply. And in the case of the EU in particular, gas markets are tighter than usual. And that's because on the one hand, many flaws were redirected towards Asia, where traders tend to pay higher prices. And also because traditional suppliers, such as Russia's Gazprom, are not really offering extra capacity to ease the market. Um, The European Commission has also said that delayed infrastructure maintenance during the pandemic has constrained gas supply further. And on top of this, we are seeing exceptional weather conditions, which are, of course, negatively impacting the price of electricity. So we have low water and wind over the summer that have, for example, hampered cheap production of renewable power, but also an extremely hot summer and freezing winters that have pushed up both the cooling and heating needs of the continent. And a final element to this picture is also the sharp rise of the European carbon price faced by power generators. So emissions permits are now traded at around 60 euros per tonne of CO2 in comparison with around 25-30 euros one year ago. Uh, The Commission has said that the impact of the surge is very limited and instead the effect of the gas price increase on the electricity price is nine times bigger in comparison to the carbon price. Okay, so you're painting a picture of both uh, political and natural causes, but what has been the reaction of the European Union to this crisis so far? Well, um, I would say that the reaction has been rather fragmented, meaning that in spite of being part of a single energy market, several EU governments have rushed to introduce emergency measures, especially to protect the most vulnerable in their societies. So as reported by me and my colleague Catherine Carson, Spain has, for example, capped gas prices, reduced taxes on electricity, and it also decided to redirect uh, profits of renewable power generators to consumers. Then we've seen Italy reducing electricity system charges and the VAT on gas, both for households and small businesses. And finally, France has also capped energy prices until spring next year. Uh, But other countries are also considering introducing measures and in particular, according to the Commission, 20 out of 27 states have either already intervened or plan to do so in the coming weeks or months. 
Um, and, and finally, only this week, the European Commission has come up with this so-called toolbox of measures to bring more order to this sort of emerging patchwork, let's say. Um, and, and that's because it was pressured by several governments to provide guidance and, of course, try to address this crisis in a more unitary way. All right. Well, let's talk about the European Commission's toolbox that you mentioned just now. Now, these are measures to address the current situation. Is there anything new in that toolbox or or is it really uh, just a list of uh, existing legal possibilities that uh, governments can fall back onto in times of difficulty? So in large part, the document points to existing possibilities, flexibilities within EU rules that basically governments can make use of. And it doesn't really bring about imminent changes to the bloc's energy markets, uh, such as, for example, a price ceiling on electricity that was really pushed for by Spain over the, the, the last months. Um, So in the short term, governments are basically encouraged to put in place aid programs for industries, provide emergency income support, reduce energy taxes for targeted parts of society, and also to appoint this um, supplier of last resort in case suppliers fail or exit the energy market. But in the longer term, the Commission's mantra remains the same. So speed up permits for clean energy projects, invest in energy savings and strengthen cross-border electricity networks. That's to say, governments, you have to focus on greening the energy system and ditch fossil fuels. Uh, Perhaps the most revolutionary bits of this toolbox are new commitments to consider rules on the storage of gas, including auctions to facilitate access to storage capacity across borders, because at the moment, not all EU countries possess gas stocks. Um, Another novelty could be this joint procurement system for gas stocks that is mentioned in the document. Participation would be voluntary, the Commission had said, and uh, the measure was, was strongly pushed for again by Spain, Italy and also members of the European Parliament. And then there is also this kind of nod to Spain and France, uh, whereby the Commission has tasked the EU's agency gathering national energy regulators to study the wholesale electricity market and look if the price formation structure is correct. But the Commission's argument remains that the current design is actually working well to deliver the green transition. And a final new measure is this um, strengthened market surveillance on the carbon market because many are arguing that there is speculation going on. So the Commission has decided to task the European Securities and Markets Authority to monitor better trading behaviour and eventually suggest policy intervention if needed. Okay, so plenty of tools in the toolbox there. But how long is the crisis expected to last? And I wonder if there are any risks that uh, this is in fact going to jeopardise or compromise the EU's climate plans. Um, so, so the high prices are certainly expected to last for the whole winter because clearly the demand for natural gas, especially in heating and electricity, will remain sustained. And then, according to the Commission, things might get better around April next next year, so around spring. So overall, the current surge is actually expected to be of a temporary nature. 
However, interestingly enough, I think in, in its communication, the Commission has also warned that the EU is likely to remain exposed to volatile energy prices during its transition towards cleaner energy sources. And, and one of the reasons of that is that power production is still very much reliant on gas as a fuel. And it will take some time uh, before, you know, renewables and storage solutions like hydrogen and batteries will be able to make a greener system more reliable. And on, on your second question, yes, I do think that there's a risk that the current crisis could jeopardize the EU's Green Deal. So some politicians, especially from the far right circles, have already started to blame green energy poli policies for, for the surge in bills and are actually exploiting the current crisis to oppose more ambitious climate policies. And to give you just one example, uh, last summer, the Commission proposed to establish a new emissions trading system for road transport and the built environment sectors. And that, of course, could lead to higher fuel prices for final consumers. And in the light of the current price hikes, that kind of policy is rather unlikely to fly. OK, Julia, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Speak soon. Julia Bedini is based in Brussels and reports on energy and environmental issues for MLEX. And her most recent reporting on this ongoing crisis is available now at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, .com. And when you're there, head straight for the News Hub tab. Now, it saddens me to have to bid you farewell, but I'm afraid we're out of time for today. But we will be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. And I certainly hope you can join me then. I'm James Paniki, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.